Well, good morning, everyone. Whether you are here in person or online, we're so glad that you're a part of this new series that we started last week from the Book of Lamentations, trying to figure out how do we navigate the space between our brokenness and God's mercy. We're going to be looking at anger today. Woohoo! That's my anger dance. Some people have a happy dance, I have an angry dance. We've got a complicated relationship when it comes to anger as human beings, okay? You remember when anger used to be cute? Do you remember that? Remember when anger used to be cute? Think of that little toddler that can, is just learning to make faces and they make an angry face. Here's what I want you to do right now. Make your best toddler angry face to somebody right beside you, okay? Turn to them, make your angry face. Make your angry face. It's cute, right? This is the challenge that we have with this emotion because anger wasn't always what it is today. It starts out being cute, make your angry face, mm, right? Like, but then there's this shift that happens. Somewhere along the line, anger stopped being cute and started becoming annoying. This is what annoying looks like, <laughs> right? Like a stank face, like you smell tuna that's eight days old. Mm, it's annoying. Anger starts to become annoying. And then it moves from being annoying to being unmanageable. Maybe you've seen this play out in your household where anger literally becomes unmanageable, unkept, undone. And then it moves from unmanageable to threatening. And if we're honest, most often that's the picture that we have in our minds about anger. It's threatening in some way, physically, emotionally, spiritually, it's threatening. So then when we come to reading the Bible and then we discover that God gets angry, like if we're reading through the Old Testament, we're like, man, God is always angry. How can that God be a loving God if he's always filled with anger? It gets frustrating to figure out this complex emotion from a human perspective. That's why we're diving into this idea of righteous anger or indignation, indignation. If you've got a Bible with you, I want to invite you to turn with me to the book of John. We're going to start by looking at a scene from the life of Jesus where he got angry, and we're going to see what we can learn from that and compare it and contrast it to what we find in the book of Lamentations in the second chapter. So we're going to be jumping in and out of scripture. If you have a mobile device, I really encourage you to either download the YouVersion Bible app, or if you already have it available on your phone, you can open it. And then you can go to the events section and the more section, and there you'll find Sea Road Live, and it has all the scriptures in sequence that we're going to be looking at together this morning. This is from John chapter 2, the New Living Translation, starting in verse 13. It was nearly time for the Jewish Passover celebration, so Jesus went to Jerusalem. In the temple area, he saw merchants selling cattle, sheep, and doves for sacrifices, he also saw dealers at tables exchanging foreign money. Jesus made a whip from some ropes and chased them all out of the temple. He drove out the sheep and cattle, scattered the money changers' coins over the floor, and turned over their tables. Then going over to the people who sold doves, he told them, Get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. Then Jesus, then his disciples remembered this prophecy from the scriptures, passion for God's house will consume me. 
But the Jewish leaders demanded, what are you doing? If God gave you authority to do this, show us a miraculous sign to prove it. All right, Jesus replied, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. What? They exclaimed. It has taken 46 years to build this temple and you can rebuild it in three days? This is a really odd scene in the life of Jesus. Normally, when I think of Jesus, I think of calm, I think of cool, I think of collected. Here, this scene, Jesus flips his lid. He gets angry. Now, we know about Jesus that he is perfect. He never sinned, ever. He never does anything wrong. So how then can he coexist in anger and yet not sin? The book of James says it like this. In your anger, do not sin. Anger itself isn't a sin. That emotion, that tension that you and I feel when something goes wrong or someone has ticked us off, that emotion in and of itself isn't sinful. It's how we process it that determines whether or not we engage in sin-filled activity or not. And so what we're going to do is we're going to uncover three elements to righteous anger or indignation that, that if we would practice and put into as boundaries around this emotion for ourselves, we would find a way to navigate through this complexity of emotion and come out on the other side still looking and living like Jesus. The first is this. Righteous anger is more about, it's not generally about a specific person, it's about a specific action. When, when righteous anger is at play, or indignation, it's generally not about a specific person, but about a specific action. Hands up if you've ever said this phrase before. You have made me angry. Every single parent should have their hands up. Grandparents included. Most often, when we feel angry, we think it's about a person, not an action. Check this out. In, in Lamentations chapter 2, I'm going to read the first three verses of this text, and it'll give us a framework for God's anger at sin. The Lord, in his anger, has cast a dark shadow over beautiful Jerusalem. The fairest of Israel's cities lies in the dust, thrown down from the heights of heaven. In his day of great anger, the Lord has shown no mercy even to his temple. Without mercy, the Lord has destroyed every home in Israel. In his anger, he has broken down the fortress walls of beautiful Jerusalem. He has brought them to the ground, dishonoring the kingdom and its rulers." All the strength of Israel vanishes beneath his fierce anger. The Lord has withdrawn his protection as the enemy attacks. He consumes the whole land of Israel like a raging fire. That's a potent picture of God's anger. Let me ask you this. What is he angry at? There's no wrong answers. Just yell them out at me. What is he angry at? Turning away from him. See, sometimes we could read a, a section of text and be like, oh, he was really mad at the Israelites. And yeah, that's sort of true. But righteous anger is more about an action than it is about a people. Think about the last time you got angry. That could have been in the last 15 minutes. Maybe somebody said something to you. Maybe somebody get, did their angry toddler face and you're like, that is not cute. That's not cute. 
That is a threat. I'm angry at them. Maybe somebody wore the same outfit that you wore this morning. Anger. Maybe on the way here, you decided to bring up all the stuff that you haven't solved yet as a family and decided to hash it out in the vehicle just before you came in the doors and then everybody turned on their smiley happy faces because everything is fine. Maybe you got mad at your supervisor because they cut, cut your hours or you found out that you're not getting that promotion that they promised you. Maybe you are mad at a neighbor because they decided to take all the snow from yesterday and blow it into your driveway. The truth is, all of us get angry, and when we actually think about it, we get more angry more often than we would care to actually admit. Righteous anger is not focused on a person. It's focused on a specific action. These three verses in the book of Lamentations chapter 2, they remind us what God feels like when he experiences betrayal. The nation of Israel, in case you forgot or don't know, was supposed to be set apart above all other people groups on the planet at that time, set apart to be this, this kind of lighthouse for the community, lighthouse for the rest of the world, as what it meant to, to live according to God's design. They were, they were meant to be a blessing to the world around them because God had blessed them. And the way that they stayed in that consistent relationship is if they chose to honor God in all things. But somewhere along the line, this happens quite often in their lives and it still does in our lives. We think that we can figure it out on our own. So instead of following God's rhythm and plan for life, we decide to embrace our own concept, our own ideas, our own agenda, dare I say it, and walk away from God's hope and purposes and plan for us in the moment. We turn our back on God. You see this unfold in the life of Jesus, the last meal that he eats on earth. His closest friends are at the table with him. Most of them have no idea what's going to be happening in the next few moments. And among them is the person that is going to betray him into the hands of the people that are going to ultimately be responsible for his crucifixion and death. One of his closest advocates and allies and friends betrays him. You know what the mark of following Jesus is? It's actually not just loving Jesus. It's learning to love Judas. Judas was that guy at that table. He'd already made a deal before that meal to sell out his friend for 30 pieces of silver for a little payday. Righteous indignation or righteous anger is about a specific action not a specific person. That's a difference. That's when we know, when we can feel, when we're feeling angry, we can know whether we're out of whack or out of balance. If I'm just angry at one of my kids for no reason, that's probably not a helpful expression of my anger. I have to do the work to dig deep and understand what is it that has actually ticked me off in the moment. What is bothering me? 
What activity or action is behind the emotional response that I'm exhibiting in the moment? I have to do that work. I have to do that work if I want to navigate the turbulent waters of anger. Otherwise, I'm going to get stuck in a space that is unchristlike and not God-honoring in my anger. I'm going to give myself license and freedom in my mind and my heart to really truly hate my enemy and not pray for them and not love them because of what they are, who they are, and then we'll even throw in the caveat of what they've done. If Jesus can forgive Judas who betrays him, he sure as heck can forgive us who also betray him all the time. It's this sense of betrayal that I think is, is the predominant action that God is frustrated at when we read about this first the three verses in the book of Lamentations. So it's important for us to start there when we are talking about anger so we know where we can put it in its right place. The times where we feel angry at someone for no reason. We're out of bounds in our anger. The times where we can identify the action that violated us in some way. Well, we can do something with that. Let's go on to point number two here, these elements of anger. Righteous anger or indignation can be a divine outlet for our human emotion. It can be a divine outlet for our human emotion. Lamentations 2 verse 11, it says this. I have cried until the tears no longer come. My heart is broken. My spirit is poured out in agony as I see the desperate plight of my people. Little children and tiny babies are fainting and dying in the streets. The author of the book of Lamentations, probably the prophet Jeremiah, is so overwhelmed in what he has seen and witnessed and experienced, and even in his own anger, is displaying this full spectrum of emotion in this verse. This is what's super hard for us to understand as North Americans. We don't do emotion well. We do the basics okay, like, oh, I love you, you love me, yay, we're a happy family. We do the basics okay, but when it comes to the complexities and the nuances of emotion, we don't know what to do. One of my favorite things to do at a funeral, believe it or not, if I'm presiding over the experience, is to actually give people permission to feel whatever they need to feel in the moment. Did you know it's okay to laugh at a funeral? Because you're remembering something unique and funny and awesome about the, the person that we're celebrating their life. It's okay to cry. It's okay to feel numb. It's okay to feel a plethora of emotions simultaneously. More often than not, in our North American culture, we want to live this reserved lifestyle, like everything's okay, we're fine. No, you're not. Something just blew up in your life, you aren't fine. Hey, how you doing? Great. What if we give ourselves permission to be honest about what we're feeling? Now, that's scary. That's scary. Because what if somebody says, hey, how do you feel about our friendship right now? Well, I kind of hate it. <laughs> right? I mean, I'm not advocating not using a filter, 
You can say, well, I think we have some tension. There's space between us right now. I don't know how to interact with you. Why don't you return my texts? Like all sorts of stuff that you could use rather than, I think I hate it. But it's going to take practice. Pete Scazzaro wrote a book about eight years ago or so called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. You know what its purpose is? To help us get emotionally unconstipated. Legitimately. Legitimately. Because what we do is we take everything that we feel, we bottle it up inside, and we stuff it down, and we stick it into places that we don't know where, where it could possibly resurface. And over time, what ends up happening is we experience such a convoluted emotional response to anything, we get triggered at the weirdest stuff. Because we haven't dealt with any of the emotional wounds or pains in that moment that really truly violated us in some way. Let's look back at this scene from, from the life of Jesus and just recap what's happening in, in John chapter 2. He goes to the temple, which is this place of worship. The temple was not like a church today. The temple was like this almost community center. It was the focal point of the community. It was where the city was built around. It was the epicenter of, of the, all of the social engagement in addition to the spiritual worship. And so this, this hub community is where people would gather regularly for a variety of things, particularly to bring worship to their creator. So Jesus is going into this space during the Passover, which is a, a huge, significant time in the Jewish calendar where they celebrate and remember God's provision for providing for them when they were in slavery in Egypt. And instead of having all of their firstborns eradicated, God would pass over their door frames when they were anointed with the blood of innocent lambs. Passover, big sense of celebration. And so lots of people, lots of entrepreneurs also wanted to capitalize on the moment. See, in this time frame of Jesus' life, the way to, to have unhindered relationship with your creator was still based on a sacrificial system that involved animals. These scapegoats that had to take your place, stand in the gap between your brokenness and God's mercy because Jesus had not yet died once and for all for the sins of everyone for all time. So in the absence of that, these animals had to stand in place. And so a lot of people would travel from far regions, days, journeys to be in this space, in this environment for this celebration, this annual ritual of the Passover and they wouldn't have time to always bring the appropriate sacrifice with them. So convenience sake, they could purchase these sacrifices on site. But instead of being a helpful tool, it became a hindrance. Because people were overcharging. Making side deals. Trying to make a few extra dollars along the way. They were turning the place of worship into something that it was never intended to be. A marketplace, a common space, instead of a holy, sacred sanctuary. So Jesus sees this unfold, and, and the scripture tells us that he makes a whip out of rope. Now, I don't know if you've ever made a whip before. 
probably going to take a little bit of time, not just 30 seconds. Sometimes in my anger, I have this emotional response in the moment. Jesus is filled with anger, and there's this, there's this steadiness of activity that he engages in, weaving together a whip that he's going to use to drive out these people to help them understand that they are participating in an activity that is not a part of this whole experience of the Passover in this, this place of worship. They're distracting from the purpose of the moment and the time. Makes this whip, drives out these people, drives out the animals, goes over to the people that are selling the birds, says, get these things out of here. Flips over tables, Make sure the coins land on the floor. The coins landing on the floor isn't like a nice carpeted area. It's a dirt space. If you've ever lost a coin in mud, it's difficult to find. He knocks all of that over because they are missing the point. See, righteous anger is a divine outlet to help us process our human emotion. We're not meant to keep that all bottled up. If Jason would have responded to this scenario that Jesus was in, I would have done it a whole lot differently. I'd have brought my bazooka. Boom! And when that didn't work, I would have unleashed my tongue. Have you ever said anything in anger that you wish you didn't? Has somebody ever said something to you in anger that you wish you hadn't heard? When we don't know how to navigate the reality of anger, we end up engaging in activity that kills the vibrancy of the soul of another person. Whether that's through our actions or our speech. So it's important for us to recognize that righteous anger is this divine outlet for our human emotion. Well, Jason, what does that look like and what does that mean? How do we process our emotion if we're unsure in that moment with that person that we're not going to do harm? One of the best ways that we can do this is through prayer. See, 24-7, we have access to the throne of God. If we're a follower of Jesus, we have an access, unhindered, unbridled access, uninterrupted access to the throne of God. When we are angry, we can take three seconds and say, God, help me in my anger. Here's what we know about God. We can stand on his faithfulness. We know that he will always be consistent with his character. Always. He has a soft spot for people who come to him, who, who reach out and say, can you please help? His heart is moved and stirred in that moment. When you cry out for help, he's not going to leave you floundering on your own. He's going to provide the help that you need. Maybe it's not always the help that you want, though. Righteous anger is this divine outlet for human emotion. We could process that immediately with God. If there's uncertainty or unclarity in that, what we can do is, is kind of parking lot that experience in that conversation and then circle back to it. But you got to remember where you've parked it. I was with my friend Sean 
back uh, probably in 2012, 2013 maybe. And we were at this conference together in Florida. And he said, hey, Jason, wouldn't it be fun if for one of the evenings that we have off, if we went down to the Disney Strip and just kind of hung out and maybe had dinner there? I was like, that sounds fantastic. That's awesome. If you've ever been to Disney World in Florida, you will know that their parkade is like a city, a mega city, right? Lots of different spaces, lots of different areas. I was not the driver. I'm saying that right now. And so Sean parked in the space. There were a couple other guys with us. We went in. We had dinner. Then we came back out to the parkade, and we were like, hey, Sean, where's the car? He's like, I don't know. You have to understand, if you've never been there, there are thousands of parking spaces, and every rental car looks the same. We spent the next one hour and 45 minutes looking for our parked car. I have never prayed so earnestly in my life. I really needed to use the bathroom. It was a challenge. We finally found our parked car, end of the story there. I use that analogy for this. Sometimes the moments that frustrate us, that make us angry, when we cannot deal with them in that immediate moment and we park them, we've got to remember where we've put it. Because if we never circle back to it, that parked vehicle that parked conversation becomes like the Grand Canyon and it severs relationship. We have to find a way to navigate all the tensions, all the challenges, all of the uniquenesses of that moment and find ways to walk through that emotion together. Sometimes, and this is why I, I say this a lot from stage, sometimes that this means gonna walking with a professional a counselor, a psychotherapist, somebody that can help you process the situation, give you a different set of tools to help you engage this parked car conversation that's been sitting there for 20 years and you haven't done anything with it. Righteous anger is a divine outlet for human emotion. We are not meant to keep all of that to ourselves. If you love somebody, tell them. My goodness, why are you keeping that a secret? Love is the greatest gift that we've been given emotionally, in my opinion, in the whole entire world. You imagine if God kept and reserved himself that he loved us, he, didn't, he never told us that he loved us? What's the point of the Bible then? The whole entirety of scripture points to his love for us. Nature points to his love for us. All of creation shouts and sings that there's a God that loves and cares and desires to have relationship with you. He does not hold back. Why do we? Why do we? I love living in North America, but this is something we have to grow in. We've got to get better at processing our human emotion in all of our relationships and even in our relationship with God. Sometimes we're like, well, I got to hide my doubt from God because, you know, I don't want to be that Christian. He already knows it's there. You're not hiding anything. Talk about it. That's how you walk through it. That's how you process it. You talk about it. I love what Jeremiah says in this verse 11. He's like, I've cried until the tears no longer came. If you've ever done that, you know what that feels like to move from great grief to almost complete numbness. 
You've got nothing left in the moment. And then you sleep really well at night. And to be honest, some of us aren't sleeping well because we have all this stuff that we've never dealt with on an emotional level. We've just kept pushing it to the side, pretending it doesn't exist, thinking that one day, miraculously, God will heal us from it. Part of your healing is dealing with it. We can't hive off the emotional well-being of ourselves and say, hey, we're all good. How we are emotionally is connected with how we are spiritually and physically and even intellectually. It's all interconnected. You can't sever off a part of yourself and not deal with it. There's a third element when it comes to righteous anger that these verses from Lamentations and that scene from Jesus' life points to. Righteous anger or indignation can be a catalyst for change. It could be a catalyst for change. I happen to believe that those merchants that were there that day that had their tables flipped over or their herds, their animals scattered or their money lost, I happen to believe that they're not looking at the temple the same way again. Like maybe they're cautiously approaching and be like, is that dude here with his whip again? Maybe they're sending a scout out in advance like, let's, let's make sure the crazy dude isn't here. So we can still conduct our business. But maybe some of them took to heart what Jesus had said and what Jesus had done and say, you know what? He's right. Why are we overcharging for a sacrifice? Why are we a barrier for people to know Jesus, to know God? Why are we a barrier for that? And sometimes, if we're honest, we unintentionally function like that in our culture, in our families, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces. I'm not talking about behavioral modification and making sure that we do everything right. I'm saying, do we do everything under the guidance of Jesus? Because sometimes we don't. Sometimes we think we've got a, just as good or a better idea or a more convenient option. Sometimes God has been putting on our hearts to participate in something or to pray for someone and we've resisted and we've resisted and we've resisted because we don't want to pray for that person. They hurt me real bad or they hurt somebody else that I love and I care about and we just don't want to do it. Righteous anger is a catalyst for change when we allow it to be. We should look at our world and we should say, man, there's a lot of stuff that's wrong. But instead of fixating on what is wrong, we should then cry out in our anger and say, God, what do we do about it? What do you want us to participate alongside of you in? How could we be co-laborers in your, your mission of restoration, of helping the entire world become aware of who you are? What is that going to mean for us? How do we participate in that? It should break our heart that 20% of kids in the Philippines have been exploited in online sex scandals. That should break our hearts. It should break our hearts when people in our own region are targeted for sex trafficking or don't have access to food consistently. It should overwhelm us. It should make us angry. And when it does, we should allow Jesus to channel our anger towards change. Maybe it's changing something that we can do on our own. 
Maybe it's changing our mindset to people when we see them on the street or on television or social media or wherever we happen to interact with them. Righteous anger can be a catalyst for change if we allow it to be. The disciples that were with Jesus that day, I think they were changed by what they witnessed their friend do. He handled his emotion with grace and dignity and even mercy. But he still processed the intensity of the moment. If we could do that, what a gift it could be for our families, our friends, our neighborhoods, our communities, our region. If we could learn to process this complexity of emotion when it comes to anger. If we could learn to live in the space between our brokenness and God's mercy, waiting for Jesus to lead us forward. If we could learn to pray until we have no more words, no more tears, nothing but the presence of Jesus that we can cling to. When we feel anger, let's not choose sin. Let's choose worship. Let's choose worship. In these next few moments, I'm going to invite you into a prayer experience with me where we're going to take some time to pray specifically about anger in our own lives. So what I'm going to ask you to do is if you are somebody that is struggling with anger right now or has tried to hide your anger, a lot of us try and do that. What I'm going to ask you to do is in a few moments as we pray, I'm going to ask you to simply as a symbol, put one or both of your hands, depending on how much you got to carry, out in front of you with your palms up. And then I'm going to ask you to like visualize and, and literally put into your hands or your hand all of the things that make you angry. Everything that comes to your mind in the moment. And then I'm going to ask you to actually drop it on the ground in front of you. And after that, I'm going to ask you to ask Jesus for instructions on what of that stuff you need to pick back up. You're going to be surprised at how little it is. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for the truth of your word and how it speaks to even the complexity of this emotion of anger. And God, I, I readily admit that there are times where I have let my anger get the best of me. And I know I'm not alone in that. There are times where we collectively have let our anger get the best of us and it leads us to a fear response or it leads us to saying things that we wish you never would have said or doing things that we ne never wish we would have done. Most often when it's, not, when it's not couched in these boundaries of righteous anger, it leads to severing of relationship and not the restoration of relationship. So God, in these moments, what we're going to do collectively as an individual we're going to put our hand or our hands out in front of us. And we're going to visualize all the things that make us angry in the moment. Maybe it's the faces of people. Maybe it's names. Maybe it's situations. Maybe it's things and stuff.
And as we're putting all that stuff into our own hands, Jesus, may you remind us that you are always present with us when shame is trying to invade our spaces as we readily admit the things that make us angry. And we think, well, man, I've been with Jesus, walking with him for 40 years, and if that's making me angry, then I must be terrible. I pray in the name of Jesus that shame would not burrow its way into our hearts and our minds in this moment. The things that make us angry, Lord, they're being put in our hands or our hand. What we're going to do symbolically as we pray, Jesus, is we're just going to drop all this stuff on the ground. We don't want to carry it anymore. It's too hard to try and figure it out on our own. And so, Jesus, we ask by your mercy, you would give us insight and wisdom on what, if anything, you're asking us to pick back up. Maybe it's names that we're going to pray for. Maybe it's a parked car conversation that's been left alone for too long. We're going to pray about those things, Jesus. And so I pray by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would give us supernatural insight and how to navigate whatever it is that we're being able to pick back up because you're instructing us to. You'd help us navigate those experiences, those tensions, those moments, those relationships, because we cannot do this on our own. It's easy to love you, Jesus. It's super hard to love Judas. So I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would provide for us what we need in the moment to make our own whip and drive those things out of our hearts and our minds and pick back up only the things that you want us to be aware of so that we can walk forward into change, into processing our emotion, into restored connection with you and with the people around us. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. As our service starts coming to a close, we're going to be uh, experiencing worship through song and worship through communion. Here in this space, we have two communion stations up at the front. We have one communion station in the balcony. And I invite you during this song of same God to come and get your elements, then come back to where you are seated and wait patiently. We will partake in communion together. Communion is an expression of worship for all friends of Jesus from all walks of life. The only requirement to participate in this activity is that you love Jesus. So wherever you are, whatever space you're in, even if you're at home and you're like, oh my goodness, I forgot about this. Water, something bread-like, whatever's around you that could represent the symbolic moment that we're going to participate in, feel free to grab those elements. So right as the musicians are playing, don't wait for anybody else. Line up in one of those two spaces or up, up top in the balcony. Grab your elements, go back to your seat, and I will be with you in a few moments. Leviticus chapter 2, verses 18 and 19 say this. Cry aloud before the Lord, O walls of beautiful Jerusalem. Let your tears flow like a river day and night. Give yourselves no rest. Give your eyes no relief. Rise during the night and cry out. Pour out your hearts like water to the Lord. Lift up your hands to him in prayer. 
pleading for your children, for in every street they are faint with hunger. As we come to the Lord's table to celebrate the sacrifice of Jesus, may we be reminded that it's because of this reality that you and I have even the privilege and the opportunity to be known and loved by God. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body broken for you. It's the body of Christ broken for you and for me. Let's eat together. During the same meal, he took a cup of wine. He talked about it representing and being a covenant. It was written in his blood. Without the blood of Christ anointing our own lives, we would be subject to the anger and the wrath of God in its fullness and in its entirety. But because of Jesus, we we can experience the mercy that exists in the passing over. Not the ridicule, not the judgment, not the suffering without reason and purpose, without God's presence with us. We don't have to, we don't have to carry that weight and that burden alone. We can walk into all of the challenging things, including our anger, with Christ beside us, the Holy Spirit in us, and God the Father looking down on us with grace and mercy and even joy. As we drink together, may we remember the blood of Jesus makes this possible. Father, for all these things, we thank you. We thank you that in our brokenness we can find mercy. We thank you that you are the same today and every day. May you bless and protect us. May you make your face shine upon us. Be gracious to us. Would you grant us your favor and your peace? We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. For those of you that are able to linger for a few moments, we're going to continue to worship in this one last portion of a song. For those of you that need to go pick up your kids, please do that so our next-gen team doesn't write me angry letters. But go or stay in the presence of Jesus. Immediately after this service, if you've signed up for our membership conversation with Pastor Jamie and myself, we're going to be up in the loft area in just a few moments so you can start making your way into that space as well. We love you, but God loves you infinitely more than we do. Thank you for being here today.